Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 14, Escape from Tarbian, where we will be looking at chapters 30 through 32 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of class consciousness. For those of you who are new, each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply it to our lives. We'll also take some time at the end to explore models of practical wisdom with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. As we are a reread podcast, there will be spoilers for The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, The Slow Regard of Silent Things, The Lightning Tree, and any other novels or short stories or information that Patrick Rothfuss has doled out about his books. And as a word to our community... Be kind, be kind to us, be kind to each other, and be kind to the authors of the books that you like to read. And now it's time for us to do a quick recap of the week's events. Now, I've elected to go to 45 seconds because it's come to my attention that I'm losing all too often and I think I need to move the T's a little closer, so to speak. So I'm going back to 45 seconds, but there's still going to be rhymes, don't worry. Coward. (laughs) I'm still challenging myself, because I'm still trying to rhyme it, so. Hmm. So are you saying that I am right? I'm saying that if you're not going to challenge yourself, why should I? That's a terrible way to look at things. (laughs) All right. So uh, you have a timer ready? I am super prepared. I do now have a timer ready. In three, two... One, go. Quoth sells a book to one who judges him by his cover. Despite his poor look, Quoth's cleverness he discovers. With the money he makes, Quoth goes to an inn where his thirst he does slake and for once starts to grin. After a bath, Quoth goes naked to a tailor. He unloads his wrath on the shopkeeper's failure to recognize noble birth. The keeper believes this bluff about Quoth's net worth and so sells him the stuff. Quoth still needs some shoes, so he finds a cobbler kindly who recognizes his soul blues and gives him some kicks, appointed finely. Quoth hires on with a caravan and meets Denna, who brings out a side that we can't stand, that part who's not a winner. After a trip back to Trappus's cellar, Quoth looks fool the others, but Trappus's side is stellar, for he'd never mistake Quoth for another. He gives Quoth a blessing and sends him on his way without distressing about needing to stay. 47 seconds. Damn it! <laughs> I loved it, though, and um, I'm willing to go easy on you. Mm-hmm. We'll find you something that tastes good. I'll let you cheat a little bit like the chocolate. Grumble cakes. It was clever. And I love you. I love you too. <laughs> and I don't actually want you to be miserable. Though I do have a very, very big grin on my face. Because you know who's only had to have raspberries once? No. <laughs> 
well, now I understand why you decided that it needed to be 45 seconds, because seriously, that was really clever and I liked it. And there was a lot of stuff to cover. Also, let's just point this out. Kvoth is a pain in the butt to say when you're trying to speak quickly. <laughs> it is. Uh, as someone who edits both of us, we both kind of go, Kvoth, and then pause, and then go on. Yeah, it's ending your words with a th that's a pain in the butt. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick Rothfuss. Well, it's why that mode of speech died with Shakespeareans. People got sick of it. Maybe I need to go with you to make sure that we get you something good. I promise no maraschino cherries. They're disgusting. I promise no cherries for pie filling out of a can. It's gross. <laughs> no, we'll actually get you something good. Okay. Let's get into the story now that Will has uh, made me very, very happy and giggly because he just boasts and then fails. <laughs> Look, at least I try to do more. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I win all the time. <clears throat> and now we really will get into the story. <laughs> I am very happy that we have actually gotten to the end of the misery slog. Yeah, it was starting to get a little depressing. It had the feeling of like a French existential film. And it really could have just been a trap. It could have lasted forever. And it's worth pointing out that it's a trap that many people in the story and in real life fall into without being able to get back out. The way that it both is written out of Tarbian, I'll point out it feels just a little bit rushed, but it also feels accurate and real. There's a sense of urgency about it that there hasn't really been for the bulk of these chapters. They've just been one unrelenting, slow kick in the teeth for Quoth. This is the first part where he starts to really take agency as a protagonist, and it seems like he's actually working on a timer now. Speaking of, there's artificial timers put into this, including he only has five days to get from where he is now to a place he's never been. That can be scary, and it sometimes yields startling results. Having been through a few moves where we've actually had time to move, and it feels like it still winds up being rushed, I've gone through multiple types of moves. I've gone through moves that take a day, from realizing you have to move, to leaving, and arriving at your new destination, to we allowed ourselves two months to move from one state to another about a year ago. And we managed to fill that time box. And so the fact of the matter is that Quoth, from time of I need to leave now to I leave takes about a day. And he manages to cram a lot of activity into it. It has the rushed feel of sort of a heist thriller. Um, what follows is a series of bluffs and half-truths and deceptions that kind of calls to mind something like catch me if you can and a lot of it is playing over class specifically playing with class conventions and stereotypes and it's i think an astute bit of socioeconomic observation on the part of patrick rothfuss here um, where Quoth takes advantage of various assumptions and we see contrast between Quoth when he is 
dressed in his normal street clothes as an urchin. His burlap sack. Right. And then once he gets something that looks respectable. So the scene opens in a bookstore called The Broken Binding, which I think is a very potent metaphor because I think there's three meanings here to take from it. First, we've got the obvious book binding. And a broken binding would be one where someone has obviously peeled the book back and flipped it over. Usually it's a well-loved book, and bookstores do love their puns. This is true. They're language lovers' paradises. So the second meaning is the sympathetic binding that we think about. Uh, he was learning from Abenthe three years ago at this point. So that's a distant but fond memory. Approximately a fifth of his life ago. And then the third meaning is sort of a release from imprisonment. And in many ways, that's what Kvothe has been going through. He's been imprisoned by circumstance, by poverty, by life on the streets. And this represents his escape from that imprisonment. It's a class imprisonment in many ways. So when he goes in, the shopkeeper initially assumes that he's illiterate and has stolen the book because both looks like someone who has never picked up a book to read in his life. Given what all the other street kids are like, they don't have training or schooling. So initially, the shopkeeper tries to lowball him. It's interesting that you assume that none of the kids came from a situation where they had a good life up until the point at which the rug was pulled out from underneath them, the way that it was with Kvothe. I think we assume this about all homeless people that we run across, that they clearly have always been that way. I think we think this about everyone we run across. We assume that the state that they are in now is the state that they have always been in, and that would be incorrect in so many cases and it's also not taking into account the complexity of human life. That's true. I'm also going to point out that in a medieval society, education would be something typically not afforded to all but the very wealthiest and those who come from a landed family. So, again, the fact that Kvothe, though he is not of nobility that we know of, had abnormal amounts of education compared to most commoners, and I'm not even talking about people who are destitute, but compared to most farmers or even most merchants or shopkeepers, he's got more education than most of them would have had access to. Formal education. Correct, and that would include the ability to read and write. So I think it's not an unreasonable assumption, but it is a false one, as many assumptions end up being. So the shopkeeper tries to lowball him, and then when Kvothe asks for a receipt, plays a mean trick on him, asking him to sign something saying that he can't read. And then Kvothe proceeds to show off a little bit. He proceeds to smart his kid in the room off a little bit. Yeah, which I can understand the impulse. It's not a good feeling to have someone trying to take advantage of you because they think you're dumb. And once the shopkeeper realizes that Kvothe actually is very intelligent and able to read and write, he then relents and proceeds to give him a more fair deal. Now that said, when Kvothe proceeds to write his own receipt, that doesn't stop him from trying to swindle things. Not just trying to, but succeeding. Yeah. Although, ultimately, it's kind of a, a silly one where he knows that he's not going to be coming back anytime soon. 
Though we do know he gets the book back. Eventually. So again, there's that set of class assumptions playing a role. He ends up getting two talents out of this, and that's quite a bit of money for Quoth. Though I will note that he winds up spending almost all of it before the day is up. It's quite a bit for him, but I don't think that it's quite a bit of money in general. It's a lot of money for someone who has nothing. It'd be like giving someone $200. He manages to make it go very far. When it represents a small percentage of your earnings for the day, it's not a lot of money. When it represents more money than you have had in the last three years, it's a lot of money. Absolutely. Both, of course, ends up pinching some pins in a bottle of ink because, well, he's become something of a thief. What I find funnier is that instead of just owning up to, I stole your pens, he steals more stuff. He steals a bottle of ink. In for a penny, in for a pound. (laughs) I mean, if you're already going to do it. So then we've got one of the more fun chapters, I think, but also one that, upon rereading, it makes me dislike Foth a little more. He uses these class assumptions, instead of to be compassionate, he uses them to exert power in ways that are petty and ugly. So first he goes to the inn, which is where he gets his first thought of, I think one day it might be kind of nice to own an inn, and lo and behold, he will. First things first, he orders what is probably his best breakfast that he can remember, which is a simple fare, but he's been starving for three years. It's comfort food. But he also is so cognizant of how much money that breakfast cost. He's stuck with a conundrum. It is really hard when you don't have things to feel comfortable even in your own skin. When you can look at yourself and realize that you do not look like you belong in places that could help you look like you belong places. Yeah, he finds himself in a bit of a chicken and egg conundrum here. If he goes to get clothes first, well, he'd have to wear them on his unclean body and no one's going to take him seriously. And that's even if somebody lets him into a store to buy clothes. They're not even going to think he can afford anything and they'll just kick him out, which we've seen happen on multiple occasions already in Tarbian. If you look like you don't have money, people will treat you like you don't have any value. Does he bathe and then have to wear the grossness again? Or does he try to get a decent pair of pants and a decent shirt and then bathe? But then he will have soiled his new shirt and his new pants. I think that the way that he goes about this is very telling on how people treat one another. It's also something that kind of puts to the lie this whole notion that people can just lift themselves up by their bootstraps. Sort of the idea that just clean up and you'll be fine. Even taking the first steps is not easy. He manages to strike a deal with the innkeeper to do hard work in order to be able to get his bath because he is cognizant of how much money he has. And I think that the innkeeper is aware. The innkeeper treats him far more kindly than Foth would normally expect. Than anyone has. So the innkeeper lets him work off his debt for the bath. For the first time in forever, Foth is actually clean. 
he sees himself in the mirror or what passes for a mirror. And he says, I look like some young noble's son. And if the theories about his mother are correct, he was. So he then concocts this idea that he's going to play the part. He takes a look at his clothes, if you can call them clothes. A burlap sack. An idea forms where he's going to just pretend to be some noble whose clothes have been stolen. I don't want to get into too much of this, but I don't like that he takes his part as a reason to be able to say words that are denigrating to women. Yeah. Also, he's degrading to everyone that he meets. He plays up this role of privilege, and part of that is just berating everyone for not immediately bowing and scraping to him. As someone who has worked customer service, I can tell you that the attitude of the customer does make a difference. Though, if you ran across me and were a complete and utter right asshole, the chances of you getting anything are zero. <laughs> I don't care. Unless my manager is breathing down my neck and then I will pass them on to the manager. I have walked out of jobs because the manager had this idea that somebody could abuse me rather than having my back. And in an early medieval society, we don't see those kinds of protections in place. The astute bit of observation here by Patrick Rothfuss is that attitude is everything. You can actually see it in our episode that talked about when he first entered Tarbian and when he was looking around nervously, not knowing where anything was, not knowing which direction to go, having little to no confidence about what he was trying to do. But in this case, his acting training, everything that was his when he was with his parents flooded back. And he was able to put on this act of being a young noble's son. But the fact that he felt that he had to be abusive to get his way. I've been around and with people like that. It's uncomfortable to be the person that is with the person being like that. It's uncomfortable even just to witness it. Like, we were at the DMV the other day, and this guy comes up, and he doesn't have a birth certificate that the state will accept. And so after being politely told that that's not what they're looking for, the dude just went off swearing and yelling. Swearing at the gentleman that worked at the DMV. You gotta figure, no one likes going to the DMV. I can't imagine that anyone likes working at the DMV. Yeah, it was really uncomfortable just to see someone treating another human being that badly. And the fact that our protagonist is putting that attitude on in order to get his way kind of feels gross. But what I do like is that Patrick Rothfuss does not go out of his way to make the shopkeeper seem like he deserves it. The shopkeeper was just on the wrong end of it. Quoth does seem to have a little bit of self-awareness about that. He seems to feel a little bit bad, or at least adult Quoth seems to feel a little bit bad about how child Quoth acted. Yeah, he brings up how he's going to just make this a ridiculous story, so this guy will at least have something to be able to say, nobles, am I right? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. There's a little sentence here that says, I fought back the urge to laugh. I get the feeling that it's not 
a laugh of mirth, but more of a laugh of almost that off-kilter, kind of like the Joker. There's a little bit of laugh in triumph. But I think there's also a bit of laugh in madness. As someone who has been on the wrong end of the kicking, it seems like he's enjoying having the kicking shoes on now. Even though he has no shoes on. This also speaks to the class expectations of a medieval society. Or even our society. Our society is less formalized in its classism, but it's no less difficult a boundary to breach. So then Quoth heads back to the inn, freshly cleaned up and now dressed. I do have a little bit of a question, though. Medieval society. Underwear? Suspiciously not mentioned. (laughs) We can move on. (laughs) So then he heads back to the inn. He's freshly clothed and bathed. Still shoeless, mind you. Now that he looks like he actually has money, which totally crappy that the state of your clothes and the state of your washing denotes whether or not you are a worthy human being. But now that he's back at the inn to collect his things, he has every intention of helping with what he said he would help with, which is the dishes. He is mistaken as not being the same person and treated very nicely like, what can I get for you? By the innkeeper, same innkeeper. The one that was like, if you have money, I can give you a place to take a bath. Now it's not even a question. This person in nice clothes, who's clean, who looks like a young noble son, obviously belongs there. And Quoth even states that he felt different, like he actually belonged there. Like before, he was aware of all of the looks, all of the stares, all of the questions about whether or not he belonged in a building that sold things like food. And not the same situation. I've never felt like I was being looked at because I looked like I was destitute. But as someone who presents as non-binary, depends on what city I'm in. We've gone back to Spokane, Washington, and I always feel a little less at ease. The attitudes there are a lot more conservative. There are a lot more people who are set in their ways and who will argue about who should be allowed in what bathroom. We've gone to cities in Arkansas where I have gone into a bathroom and felt like because of my hair being blue at the time and partially shaved and the fact that I wear jeans and a hoodie almost exclusively and I don't wear makeup and I don't present strongly towards female, I've worried that I'm going to be at best stared at and questioned internally and at worst confronted. And some of that is my own assumptions. Some of that is my own worries and hypervigilance. And some of it is because I have seen people staring at me, trying to figure me out. One of the things that really struck me about this section is Quoth talks about how when he was in his rags, he was seemingly invisible. He was treated as less than human. And once he's had his makeover, people 
recognize him as human, but they just stop looking at him. Like, he just blends in with the rest of the crowd. The opposite of how he feels in the tavern. Right. So let's kind of dissect that a little bit. Yeah, it's a weird conflict. So when he's out in society, he feels invisible. But when he tries to enter society looking like a street urchin, I'm picturing Pigpen from Charlie Brown. When he looks like he's attracting bugs and flies and lice and that he couldn't possibly afford to actually set foot into an establishment. He feels the stares and the unwelcomeness. But as soon as he becomes clean and well-dressed, he feels a sense of belonging in the tavern. He feels more comfortable. And then when he goes outside of it, his hypervigilance, his anxiety, his learned responses are to be afraid when he is part of the crowd, when he belongs in the crowd. I think it's the difference between moving with the herd and being trampled by the herd. When he's out among the crowd, he's used to essentially being trampled underfoot by everybody. Like, they don't even notice him. But when he goes out with good clothes on, he's treated as unremarkable, but not invisible. Like, people just afford him the normal space that any human should be able to have on a busy street. He's not shoved aside. And because that's not what he's used to, it throws him for a loop. Circumstances in this are a little conspicuous. His hypervigilance causes him to wind up, by accident, in a perfect place for him. In a cobbler's shop with a sympathetic proprietor. Yeah, the cobbler I thought was really fascinating. He's the only one who actually sees through Kvothe's exterior to get to what his actual circumstances are like. I like this point because you'd think that the person measuring him for clothing would also have taken in his feet, maybe his scars, maybe how thin he was. But Kvothe's attitude and bluff and making himself so wholly unpleasant that no one wanted him anywhere near them made them blind to the truth of what Quoth was. And the cobbler sees through it. He looks at the sole of his feet, which seems to reveal the soul of the person. Also, Quoth has dropped the act by now. Quoth is afraid. He has gone out of his element, which is waterside. He knows waterside. He feels comfortable and confident in his home, even if his home is a trash pile. And he goes from there to Hillside, and Hillside is a place that has terrible memories for him, where he feels like he doesn't actually belong. He feels like he is acting, and he's not confident. Yeah, this was where he got probably the worst beating of his life that one midwinter. Being says he's so uncomfortable there, he's dropped the having to be a right nutter asshole. And he's vulnerable, and that's when he's seen. Yeah, he ducks into the cobbler's shop, and the cobbler makes a pretty obvious little dad joke. Let me guess, you need shoes. He recognizes Quoth for someone who has led a hard life. And I also notice that he doesn't judge him for it, which I thought was very touching. It's certainly not the behavior that Quoth has come to expect from people with money. 
I like the attitude of the cobbler a lot. Here, try these on. Okay, we're putting these on. Nope, that didn't work. You're right. Sorry. He doesn't even let Quoth say anything. He just knows. It's like, nope, this doesn't work. And I think that this is a bit of fast talking that he probably does with a lot of people. It puts them at ease because he's friendly. It's almost like Ollivander. Let's try this. Nope, nope, that doesn't work. Nope, let's try this. Okay, well, let's try this. And I like that it's disarming. So he puts on a pair of shoes that are a little tight. He's like, nope, nope, these are definitely wrong. And he puts on one that is a deep purple. Nice color, though. Good for chasing the ladies. Ambrose. (laughs) All I thought about when I saw that. Does Ambrose wear purple shoes? Ambrose wears purple. That's right, royalty. Yes. Color theory in the narrative. So one thing that I thought about when I read this is the Samuel Vimes theory of socioeconomics through the lens of boots from Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. In it, Sam Vimes, who is the captain of the local Night's Watch in Ankh-Morpork, has this theory that it is cheaper to be rich than it is to be poor. Because when you are poor, you buy the pair of boots that you can afford. And you can't afford much, so you're looking at something that's like 25 pence. They're going to be nice for maybe a day or so, but after more than a month, they're going to be paper thin and wearing out and to the point where you may as well not be wearing anything. And so then you have to go pay another 25 pence to get another pair of boots. And on and on it goes because you don't have much money beyond that. Whereas a rich person has the ability to buy a nice pair of boots for 100 pence, which is going to be good for years. They're spending 100 pence up front and able to essentially then wear that for several years, whereas the poor person is spending the same amount every five months and then having to spend more and more and not able to actually save anything because the poor person has been trapped in this cycle. Both is in a similar spot. This is true, though. It does cost more money to be poor. You get charged fees for not having money. You have to buy more things at a lower cost that are much worse quality. You oftentimes end up having to settle for disposable things that end up costing more than you'd spend on just buying something nice that would last. Heck, our friends who live in a place that the kitchen is being remodeled incredibly slowly, as in it's been almost a year that they've been without a kitchen because one of their appliances fell through the floor and they rent. They have to either eat convenience food that can be made in a microwave, or they have to eat things that have been prepared at a restaurant or at the deli counter of a local grocery store. And it always winds up being more money, less healthy, and more depressing after a while. And they can't get ahead because something else breaks. It's a very difficult set of circumstances to be in. Quoth is fortunate that he's managed to find essentially a loophole to get out. And yeah, he takes it for all it's worth. But he also got pretty damn lucky that he ran into this cobbler who could have charged him a lot of money, but also found a way to give him a pair of used shoes that were the most comfortable things he's ever worn. Before we completely leave the cobbler behind, his son's name is Jacob. There are a lot of Jakes in this universe. We'll save it for one of our Patreon Bat Country podcasts. We also come back to a theme of you have old souls for a boy so young. 
He's said this before in a different way, that people always think that he's older than he is. You see that description used for Kvothe as coat, where he seems much older than he is until the mask slips a little bit, and then you realize he's a lot younger. Also, there's a bit of a foot pun here. Old soul. I suspect that the cobbler is a bit of a punter. There's a lot of puns in this whole chunk. Then he gives Kvothe a pair of youth shoes, clearly meaning for him to take them, and whistles, leave the town tinker. The cobbler has an air of mysticism around him that's mischievous, similar to the air that we get around Scarpy. Yeah, there's a little bit of whimsy to him. You think about his patter, he's trying on the shoes, he's making sort of light jest over things, which is not something Foth has had much of in his interactions in Tarbian. He treats the cobbler a lot better than he treated the tailor. He leaves two jots. Why? Because pride is a strange thing. I will agree to that. I've been in places where my pride prevented me from taking what I thought of as handouts, but wouldn't prevent me from taking things if I felt that they were gifts. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but we've been on the other end of the situation. When you don't have a whole lot, especially financially, and someone that you're friends with does and is willing to pay for your way or is willing to give you or wants to give you a gift that you yourself could never afford or at this point in your life you could not afford, pride steps in and prevents you from being happy. And it also prevents you from just accepting that someone is giving this to you feeling like you have to somehow pay them back for it. And we've been on the side that gives gifts to our friends who are going through a rough spot. It's refreshing. I do have one friend who doesn't do the, no, no, I can't accept that. And I love her for it. It puts us in a tough spot of wanting to be generous, but not wanting to cause discomfort. But also we have a friend who, anytime that we went out to dinner with her, she always, always, always made sure that she got the bill. She's uh, mischievous like that. And sometimes she's sneaky about it. It almost turns into a bit of a game to see who can take the bill. But when you don't have the money to pay for that bill and somebody just does it for you, I don't know, sometimes that doesn't feel good. It can feel like you're in their debt. It was meant as a gesture of kindness, as a gesture of generosity, or as just matter of course. But when you're on the receiving end of it, It feels bad to feel pitied. Yeah, and we also have other friends who figure that when you have a lot, you give, and then when you don't, you receive, and you just kind of contribute what you can. It's like a pot of soup. I really like that style, where it becomes less of a transactional nature, and it's just everyone contributing what they have the means to contribute. And if all you can manage to give because of emotional energy is just your presence, that's also plenty fine. It does feel a lot better than the people where you go to dinner and they care deeply about how much dip you ate. Yes. And how much you paid for. Yes. Yes, we have personal experience with that as well. That one feels gross. It really does. And I was the one who received the bulk of the ire in that situation too. I didn't like it. Shared plates are a trap. I much prefer the, 
I covered it this time, you cover it next time, or even even if the monetary value isn't to the penny the same. At a certain point, you're not trying to treat it as an exercise in accounting. You're just wanting to take care of your friends. This whole thing takes less than a day, but his next stop is finding passage from Tarbian to Emre. He doesn't know how to get to Emre. He doesn't know how to get to the university. He needs to go with someone, not just for protection, but also because he doesn't have a map. So he pays for passage on a caravan heading that direction. And then we get this beautiful little wrap up to the section of Tarbian. This whole section has been about how Quoth fits into certain segments of society or doesn't fit. He looks nice now. He's clean. He's well-fed. And he goes back to Travis's basement. And one of the kids tries to steal from him. He realizes that he no longer looks like he belongs here. And for the better part of the last three years, this has been the only place he could call home. This has been the closest thing he's had to family. And he has that moment of fear that Trappist will not be able to recognize him. But Trappist doesn't see the clothes. And he doesn't see the dirt or the lack of dirt. He sees the kids. He knows the children. And he cares for them. I've listened to this section. I've listened to these books four or five times now. I've read this before. And I still get misty-eyed at how absolutely beautiful Trappist's soul is. It could be very easy for someone to be resentful of sudden success. And Trappist's reaction is the exact opposite, where he tells Quoth, I'm glad that you made it out. I'm always glad when that happens. I know it's not a given, but when it does happen, I celebrate it. Trappist, again, just being the being of pure light that he is, recognizes that for all the suffering, none of these kids deserve that. None of them are here because of their own iniquity. None of them are in this situation because this is how it ought to be. He wants all of these kids to be in a position where they don't need him. But until that's the case, he's going to be there. Just as he wasn't going to let the dirt prevent him from recognizing these kids as intrinsically valuable people, he also wasn't going to let a fresh bath and <laughs> set of clothes prevent him from recognizing them as also profoundly wounded people who need nurturing and love. And that need for love isn't going to go away just because they have a little bit more in their bank account. Or purse, as the case may be. The one thing we didn't touch on that happens is that we get our first glimpse of Denna that we know about. We don't get her name yet. We just see that there is a girl that will be coming along on the caravan and a warning that if Foth does anything to the girl, bad things will happen. It doesn't stop Foth from making heart eyes. His description of her as beautiful is something that leaves her up to our imaginations and also is a little bit of a disservice to her as a person. Yeah, I was kind of turned off with the line where Quoth says, 
I'd never seen anything so beautiful. That just ugh, rubbed me wrong. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You. Thank you for being the person who said that. She's a person, not a thing. Thank you. Because I thought the same thing. In fact, in the book, I highlighted anything. It always, always rubs me wrong. And mind you, I think that word is chosen to be correct for the character. And I don't think that that is Patrick Rothfuss projecting himself and his attitudes. I think that that's Kvothe because he had no problem saying words that I am not repeating here, talking about the person that hypothetically stole his clothing. Also, this is teenage Kvothe who falls into a trap that a lot of teenagers fall into, where the object of their affection is not treated as a full person. Treated like an object of their affection? Yeah. They don't see the people they're attracted to as people. They're seeing them as sex objects. And it's a gross thing. So we'll get more into that next week as we get more into his first real encounters with Denna, his first real interactions with Denna. I'm not sure he ever stops feeling about her as an object and starts thinking about her as a person. I agree. And a lot of people don't like Denna. I don't like sections about Denna primarily because I don't like the way Kvoth treats her. And those are in contrast to other female characters like Ari, like Davy, like Fella or Mola. Denna gets short shrift. I think this is one of Kvoth's fatal flaws as a character. And I think that it's a flaw of his own making. And now we come to the time where we speak about our Phronemos of the Week. I believe it's your turn. I believe you are correct, sir. Who do you have? So my Phronemos of the Week is the cobbler that gave Kvoth the pair of used shoes. The reason that he is my Phronemos is because he's kindly. He makes these little dad jokes, which... I think are just adorable, especially out of an older man. And he's sweet without being patronizing. He is honest. He doesn't truly complain about the customers that he has a little bit of disdain for, the fancy nobles that come in, and we can infer that they are probably just jerks to him. He talks about them with a little bit of a laugh in his voice, a little bit of laugh in his heart. And he talks about a person's soul along with the homophone of a person's soul of their foot. And he's very astute. He can tell that when you have something stinking, when you have something hidden and dark and damp, speaking of your foot and your soul, that covering it up with powders and finery doesn't really do anything to rid yourself of the stink. But... He sees Kvothe for who he is and sees him as somebody open and honest, but that's lived a hard life already, and he's all of 15. And not only that, he's generous to Kvothe. He doesn't want to hurt Kvothe's pride, but he also doesn't want to just let him leave without feeling cared for by somebody. And so giving him the broken-in shoes 
that were his child's. And I love the little whistling of leave the town tinker as a subtle or not so subtle, you can leave now, take the shoes. It just spoke to me and I loved it. I loved that scene too. For all the same reasons that you stated, and this is one of the few instances where Quoth feels seen as a person, I think, in Tarbian, in the non-Trappist division. It's that same sort of recognition of him as a person, and that his means don't define his worth. I have a number of friends who have either been laid off, let go, or chosen to leave a job because of stress and anxiety. And at least in the United States, having to earn money for you to have value is so toxic. It's terrible. I mean, I know that we need the money in order to live the lives that we want to have, or even just to have a roof over our heads and not to have to live in a car or something to that effect. But I see so many people who feel like they should be productive members of society feeling so down on themselves. If they choose or not choose, if they just don't have something that they're bringing in an income. I've felt that way. My degree does not have a whole lot of use in the area that we have moved to. And it's tough for me to find a job that will pay me that isn't a retail job. And I know myself well enough. I don't want a retail job. I would rather not be making an income than making an income while I'm miserable. And as long as we're sustaining that, I don't have a problem. If I try to explain to somebody outside of the two of us that what I do is edit a podcast that we pretty much do for fun, I kind of get that, but what are you doing professionally? Push back a little bit. And the thing is, to me, this is professionally. I've also felt that I've gone through spells of unemployment and... For so long of my adult life, it's been defined by making sure that I have money coming in from the work that I do. And going through a period where you're not bringing in any money, it's really easy to tell yourself that that thing that had been giving you value has suddenly affected your worth as a person. It's pretty terrifying. And you're right. It's not a good feeling. And I love how the cobbler manages to find a way to see Quoth for who he is and what he needs and provide for him without pitying. Yes. I think that's the biggest takeaway here is that there is no pity. The overwhelming thing is you're in need. I have this thing. It's no skin off my back for you to have this thing. And you needed a lot more. When he tests Quoth's shoe size, when he sizes him up, he has a unique opportunity to be generous that he maybe wouldn't have if Quoth's feet were any other size. I do note that Quoth has a lot of instances in his life where fate just kind of lines up correctly for him. It's almost like he's a storybook hero. Almost. <laughs> I think this is one of those instances where the cobbler was looking for a way to be generous and he saw an opportunity. And I think we could all learn from that. We're not going to be in a position to help everyone every time. 
but it's always good to be on the lookout for those opportunities when you can be generous in a very specific way. That was beautiful, by the way. Thank you. I really love that when we discussed how we wanted to structure this, that one of the things you wanted to do was find a character that we could model ourselves off of. It's a thing that we have heard in a different podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts, which if you are a fan of Harry Potter, if you are a fan of the books, even if you have issues with the author, because I do, the people who make that podcast are thoughtful and caring and loving, and they pick a character to focus on in each chapter that they cover. And that was really inspiring to us. And I love that you came at it with a philosophical bent, because that's just you. It's how I roll. And now, for the way that I roll, it is time for you to interest me with an interesting fact. Thank you. Today we're going to do a little bit of cultural anthropology, and we're going to talk about the Amish. Oftentimes, we in contemporary American society have this stereotype of the Amish as these backwards Luddites living in the northeast part of America who reject pretty much all modern technology. And they're a little more complex than that, and it's in some very interesting ways. It helps to understand a couple things. First of all, they're not really a monolithic group. They're a set of communities founded on guiding principles that affect each community a little bit differently and are expressed differently based on their circumstances. And particularly when it comes to technology, it's very common that we think of them as people who automatically just say no to everything. And that's partly true, but their attitude actually makes a lot more sense when you think about it in terms of how we adopt technology. And by we, I mean contemporary American society at large. Our typical response to new technology is to say yes. And our yes is based on how it benefits us individually, whether that be smartphones or cars or new forms of energy or anything like that, our first impulse is to say yes to it. Yes is based on the individual. The Amish, however, approach it from a perspective of no as the default. And their no is based on what effect will it have on the community. So for instance, they reject the ownership of cars because that means that people feel like they don't need to be a part of the local community. They can go elsewhere for their needs. They don't depend on one another, and it gives them this illusion of self-sufficiency. However, that does not mean that they will not ride in cars. For instance, in one community, there were more people than there were jobs on the farm, so many of the local young men took jobs in a factory. It was outside of the range that they could get with a horse and buggy, so they called a communal cab driven by an outsider. So they all essentially piled into a minivan and would take that all the way there. And part of it is, again, this distinction between technology that they use and technology that they own. So technology that they use for work, in this case, it's something that they control as opposed to having it control their way of life. So they could use it for work and then leave it. 
So they go to the factory, they work with computers, they work with machines, they work with all kinds of contemporary things that we take for granted. And then when they're done, they go back to their homes. And that technology doesn't own their lives and it doesn't own their communities. So it's really fascinating. And it also doesn't mean that their homes are without electricity, but they think about where their electricity comes from. For you and me, it's just a matter of course, and it comes from our local municipality and it gets it from the larger grid. Whereas for the Amish, they will only electrify homes if they're shared off of a common generator run by the local community. That's only if they have decided as a community to do that. So here are the four principles that the Amish use when evaluating new technology. One, they're selective. They know how to say no and are not afraid to refuse new things. They ban more than they adopt. Two, they evaluate new things by experience instead of by theory. They let the early adopters get their jollies by pioneering new stuff under watchful eyes. Three, they have criteria by which they select choices. Technologies must enhance family and community and distance themselves from the outside world. And four, the choices are not individual but communal. The community shapes and enforces technological direction. When I think about how that stands in contrast to the way we in American society, and particularly in the high-tech community, adopt new technologies almost compulsively, it can be really instructive about how maybe we should be a little more mindful. I can think of innumerable examples of how this kind of unthinking technological innovation has had negative impacts. Consider things like how social media has influenced the way we communicate in ways that are oftentimes extremely toxic. And that could be fixed by being more mindful in how we adopt them instead of just blindly and unthinkingly picking up the latest big thing. And you think about how we examine new forms of power and energy, oftentimes not considering how those impact our greater communities. We don't think about where the power comes from for our grids, we just plug in and go. And we assume that because I have a car, I can go wherever I need and I am independent, even though the ownership of that car is itself something that creates a dependency within me because I have to pay for it, I have to fuel it, I have to do all sorts of stuff that control my own choices. And we don't necessarily consciously think about the impact of those choices, whether that be communal or environmental. So I thought that that was just a really fascinating way of thinking about what we do and how we choose things and how we make our decisions. I don't know that we can necessarily always do this, but it's always important to remember that the attitudes that are most common in our society are not the defaults, but are instead things that we have been told are normal, but they're not. Or are conditioned to believe are normal. Exactly. So, have I interested you? Yes. Yes! <laughs> no more cherries for me. <laughs> Speaking of, I have, in the time between we recorded last and now, been given a wonderful suggestion for what your new punishment will be. Uh-oh. Who do I have to blame for this? I think you know. We have listeners from New Zealand and Australia that mentioned a candy called Cherry Ripe. I really don't like where this is going. It's chocolate, 
and cherry flavoring. Oh. And apparently it's divisive in Australia. So I will also be trying this stuff. It arrives on Monday because Amazon has everything. Oh, dear. I don't know how old this candy is going to be. <laughs> well, listeners, let's leave aside such unpleasantness and think about our seven words for the week. This time it's my turn for the book. Yep. What do you got? So there were a few, and we've mentioned two of them. I looked like some young noble's son, which I think has an important context. I fought back the urge to laugh, which speaks to Kvothe's madness at that moment. I think in that case, the fighting back, the urge to laugh, sometimes when you realize that you had a certain power to do something all along and you haven't taken it and you look at it and you go, but I could have done this three years ago, except I couldn't or I didn't. I think there's a little bit of that Mad Hatter feeling, like that mirthless laughter. But what I chose instead is I'm leaving. I'm heading inland to Imre. He's answering the call. So the reason that I chose I'm leaving, I'm going inland to Imre, was because in episode 11, we had that big question of why didn't you just leave? And I think that he couldn't. I don't think that Kvothe was in a space where he could contemplate leaving. And then at the time when it just became so clear that he had to, it had to be quick. But being able to go down to Trappus's basement and tell Trappus, who is at this point his only real family in Tarbian, and then Trappus's reaction is just so beautiful of saying, I'm so happy when any one of you gets to leave, but you always have a home here. It's lovely and poignant, and it brings a nice little closure to the Tarbian section. All right. So it's my turn to pick seven words from life, and in honor of Valentine's Day, which was yesterday when we were recording this, I have picked the following. But, but... But, but, but is legs. <laughs> oh my god. What you literally said on the way upstairs to record. Or, well, we said. I may have engineered it. And yet, it is delightful. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> with that, I want to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Please join us next week as we discuss chapters 33 through 35 of The Name of the Wind through a lens of infatuation. Special thanks to Shawnee Jang for creating our fantastic theme music. We would also like to thank Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. I'd also like to note that we recently were reached out to by World Builders, which is the charitable organization that Patrick Rothfuss works with. And they also run a store that has a lot of official merchandise for a lot of books that we enjoy. 
and also artists that we enjoy, including Patrick Rothfuss and Jim Butcher and Nate Taylor, who you really have to look at some of his more recent illustrations. They are absolutely adorable. There's a little coffee monster and there's a lot of Star Wars things that I've seen pop up on his Twitter. Not to mention the princess and Mr. Wiffle. And the second book. Yes. Also, you can get the UK covers of The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, and The Slow Regard of Silent Things through their store. And they're so beautiful. It is a great way to support both creators that you love and also make the world a bit better while doing so. Just wanted to give a little shout out to them because they are awesome. And we're glad that people who work with the people we love love listening to us. So thank you. Now back to our credits. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. You can also follow us on the various social media platforms at WaystonePod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. picked the following butts hold on hold on hold on the cats are being butts they are stop being butts stop is it him it's him it he him. can't go in here no 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 no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs>